Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. Welcome into episode 188. I appreciate you carving out some time for us and this episode here today. As you can see, Josh Williams is our guest on the show, and he is not the driver. He is the spotter. As I put in the episode title and description, we definitely got into that in the podcast conversation about how often he gets confused for being Josh Williams, the one with the mullet, the one that drives the race cars in the Xfinity series, but he is not. He is the spotter for Ryan Blaney in the Cup series, so no confusion there. We hit on that. Also going to chat a little bit later about Kyle Busch's win in St. Louis, wins at Gateway Worldwide Technology Raceway, his 20th different track that he's went on in NASCAR's Cup Series. That's a pretty impressive feat, if I do say so myself. But before we do any of that, we have to throw it over to Papa Siegel with this week's Wayback segment. I'm glad you're feeling better, Papa. What do you have cooked up for us this week? Thank you, Duve, and welcome, everyone, to Episode 188. If you've been paying attention, you've likely noticed that it's been a struggle at times to find worthy discussion subjects the second time through the numbers. No such problem this week. As we discussed last time, 88 is one of the most used and most famous numbers in NASCAR history. Last time around, we celebrated one of my favorite drivers, Dale Jarrett, with apologies to Dale Earnhardt Jr., who we said was worthy, but it just wasn't his time yet. Today's as good a day as any to revisit that. I think it may be a common misperception that Dale Jr. grew up as a child of privilege with a greased path to NASCAR stardom. See what I did there, Duve? Greased? Well, if you thought that, you'd be wrong. Keep in mind that Jr.'s early years were before his daddy made it big. He was raised by his mother along with his older sister, Kelly, before their house burned down and his mom had to give up custody to Dale Sr. prior to his marriage to Teresa Houston. When his daddy was away on the weekends with Teresa at the track, Kelly took care of Junior until he was sent away to military school when he was 12. That sound easy to you? Earnhardt didn't begin his pursuit of a racing career until he was 17. He raced street stocks for a couple of years, before moving up to the late models and then to the Bush Series in 1996. He won Bush Series championships in 1998 and 1999 over Matt Kenseth, as Junior likes to pronounce it. The rest, the good, the bad, and the ugly is, as they say, history. You know about his years at DEI. You know about him winning in July at Daytona the year his father died there. You know about his dominance on restrictor plate tracks. You know about his switch to Hendrick 
but did you remember that he wasn't able to bring number eight with him because of a licensing dispute with his stepmother, who it's widely believed ran DEI into the ground before it was shut down and eventually merged with Chip Ganassi's team. That's why Jr. raced 88 at Hendrick. Earnhardt Jr. ran well, won races, was competitive, but never achieved his goal of winning a championship. Then the crashes and concussions began piling up, and he made the brave decision to retire from full-time cup racing in 2017. He married well, became a daddy himself, and has become a highly regarded commentator, multimedia host, president of his own media empire, and owner of his own championship racing team. The Accomplishments Two-time Bush Series champion, as we mentioned. Two-time Daytona 500 champion. Five-time Daytona dual winner. Fifteen-time most popular driver. NASCAR Hall of Fame inductee in 2022. And named one of NASCAR's 75 greatest drivers this year. And if that wasn't enough, did you know that Dale Earnhardt Jr., suffers from cosmemophobia, which is a fear of jewelry. Your mother sure doesn't suffer from that one, Duv. Kachiga! Absolutely. Back to you. Thank you, Dad, and thank you, Mom, for that wonderful ode to the number 88, a very, very important one, a very famous one in NASCAR history. Dale Jarrett, Dale Earnhardt Jr., so many other drivers have, and probably will driving the number 88 in their time so appreciate you papa siegel in terms of throwing it back and paying homage to one of the biggest numbers in nascar history let's start off this episode as we always do with a good old-fashioned and throw it straight over to my interview with josh williams spotter for ryan blaney in the cup series zane smith in the truck series and maybe saying wait did he win the championship last year with zane yes he did that is an incredible feat that he has accomplished we got into that in our conversation he's from martinsville he has a clock in his living room that he was sitting right next to when we were having this chat really cool that he was able to get that championship get that win won the coke 600 a couple weeks back with yrb we chatted about that and if he thinks momentum is a real thing and if you just google josh williams spotter nascar You'll find all these stories and all these pieces about how he was really involved with Dale Earnhardt Sr. when he was a young kid due to his dad's work with Sr. So we got into that in our conversation and so, so much more. I was really happy to chat with Josh. It's been a minute since we were able to catch up, and he was super, super fun, super engaging, and I really enjoyed it. I hope you'll enjoy it just as much as I did, if not more. Here's my chat with Spotter in the Cup Series for Ryan Blaney and Truck Series Champ. Josh Williams. Pleasure to welcome on to the show today, spotter of the number 12 cup car, Coca-Cola 600 winner, kind of a Rolex 24 winner, <laughs> Josh Williams. How we doing, my friend? It's been the longest two weeks in terms of running 900 miles in the cup car that I can ever really imagine. I can't imagine how it's felt for you. Yeah, it's definitely been a long two weeks. You know, the Coke 600 was basically two days of waiting on the rain and then racing. And then mm -hmm. we went to St. Louis this week for gateway and 
had another delay. So it's been a long, a long two weeks, but glad to get two good runs behind us and a win. Yeah, we were joking before we hit record. Sunday felt like the longest 300-mile race I had ever watched, and it felt like a 600-mile race. And, and time-wise, it probably was just as long as the 600 was without any delays. Absolutely. It was, it was definitely a long race, and you get those weather delays, and there's really nowhere for us to go. So you're still mm-hmm. outside waiting it out, seeing what's going on. So you get a break, but you're still out there in the elements and battling the heat, which was really hot in Gateway this weekend. So you don't really – you're not necessarily working on track, but you're still out there in it the whole time. So it definitely makes for long days. Gateway is obviously a relatively new venue for the cup series in terms of spotter sight lines. And in terms of where you guys are set up, does that one need a little bit of work? I've heard some rumblings that the spotter stand there, at least in terms of sight lines, isn't the best. You still got by obviously, but maybe some work to be done. You tell me. Yeah. it's, It's one of the tougher ovals that we go to most ovals. The grandstands are a little bit higher, so you can see all the, the corners very well. That one, the grandstand isn't really as high because the straightaway is so long. It's not as tall as much as it is wide. So, you know, off of four, there's a couple hospitality tents there that kind of block a few sections of the track. And then in the one, the angle they have us is a long way down into one. So you just kind of like Pocono turn one is where you can only see the, the spoilers going away from you. And it, it makes it hard to be very accurate. Um, you can see when they wreck, obviously, but somebody trying to peek out on restarts and stuff like that makes it tough. Are there times, not not just the gateway, but in general, where you'll tell Ryan or Ryan will kind of know, like, hey, man, you're on your own for this two-second stretch because I can't see you, so good luck. Yeah, absolutely. Like this weekend for gateway, for, for example, on Saturday during practice, I videoed another car making a lap just to show him, like, this is where I can't see and these are where the, the more difficult spots are, which – yeah. This weekend was a little bit off of four and in the one. So I'm like, in the one on restarts, I'm going to be cautious where you might be a little more aggressive with knowing exactly what's around you. I'm not going to call it too close on that that aspect of it. So a couple places like that, you kind of tell him where you can see, where you can't. Same thing we kind of do at road courses where we'll have three or four different spotters and we'll all tell him where we see him, where he loses him. So the pace laps, he kind of gets an idea of where he might be on his own for a little bit of a section. I assume that's kind of where the – the chemistry and camaraderie and comfort level of working with a guy like you have with Ryan for several years now comes into play in terms of, look, I'm not going to put you in a bad spot, but I'm going to be a little bit cautious here and not necessarily do something that I'm not a hundred percent sure of. You have that trust in him. He has that trust in you. And when you can't do your job effectively, albeit for just seconds at a time, you got your faith in your driver and your driver has the faith in you. And it's kind of a seamless relationship. It kind of seems that way from the outside. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. And I think a lot of that comes with years of being together. You know, we've been together long enough. He kind of knows my tendencies. I know his tendencies. He knows if my voice gets higher, something's happening versus it's not really a close situation. So just being open like that with where I can see where I can't. So he knows that if I'm saying something, he can trust that I'm accurate of what I know. And if I'm not, it's not where's Josh at. It's Josh can't see this part very well. And that's where he kind of needs to be on his own. So it just, it comes with so many races and laps of being in each other's ears and eyes and ears and that kind of deal with just working together. So going back to a week or so to the Coca-Cola Center, you guys obviously won that race, huge win, snapping a 59 race winless drought for you and Ryan and everybody on the 12 team. We hear a lot in sports about 
momentum. And some people say that it's a myth, it's a fallacy. Some people say, yeah, it's definitely a real tangible thing. Where do you stand on that? Did you feel like a palpable sense of mojo headed into Gateway coming off that win? Uh, definitely, yeah. I think I don't think our year's been too bad. We just haven't haven't won or been you know a top three or four car where people are talking about you every week. But we've been we've been competitive almost every week, which is why we are where we are in points. So I don't think we really were lacking momentum, but I feel like just getting over that hump of getting that first win boosts everything up. That it just kind of takes you to that next level. And I think that showed a gateway. I thought we were, I mean, we had just a good chance of anyone to win if we could have got out front yeah. and led quite a bit of that race. So I think that's definitely a carryover from running so good at Charlotte and winning that one. I would probably say that was Ryan's biggest win to date. That That's a major, as we call it, right at Charlotte, everybody's backyard. Given that you've worked with Ryan for, I think literally his entire cup series career, that's probably among, if not the number one, biggest win for you as a spotter right yeah that's a big one uh, especially in the cup series but you know I, I feel like going on the drought as everybody wants to say which it's extremely hard to win in cup but going you know a little over a year without winning just makes you anticipate that much more like you want it you obviously want them but you want that next one to come and you don't know when it's going to be so I feel like finally after going through that little bit of a, a goal getting that win is, is cool. And I think that's probably one of the biggest ones of our, our career. I mean, Pocono, his first one was really cool and really big, but I think getting that, that one was big. It's funny you say the drought, because I just realized while Ryan was in the midst of a almost two year drought, you're winning a championship down in the truck series. So like you may not have been on a drought per se, as it pertains to the cup series. Sure. But you won a championship last year. I know it's, it's kind of a cliche question, but the fact that you can call yourself a champion in NASCAR's national series. How big of a deal is that to you personally? Yeah, it's awesome. You know, you don't, you don't always do it for the personal accolades and it's all about the team and everyone that, I mean, so much work goes into a car, but it's cool to kind of get your, your first championship individually. Like we've been, we've been on a part of some of the Xfinity owners championships at Penske mm -hmm. and those are awesome, but you're kind of sharing it with other guys. And we were, we were rookies sharing it with Joey Logano and Brad Keselowski back then. So you're, you're sharing it with some really good guys, but to go out and get the truck championship as the only spotter for the truck all year, that was, that was a really cool, cool feather in the cap, you know, and this year has been pretty good. Just need to finish off some races. Hopefully we can go for another one this year. Yeah. Zane's had a bit of a, a rough stretch in terms of luck this year, especially this past weekend. Right. I mean, as a yeah. spotter went, when you see somebody diving in underneath you and, Tom Ajeski's not a dirty driver by any means. He's one of the cleanest guys. So there was no ill intent there whatsoever. But at that point for you, all you got to do is say inside and you're kind of helpless. I mean, I can't even imagine the feeling atop the spotter stand when there's nothing you can do, literally. Yeah, it's, you almost can see it coming as soon as they start getting loose, but it's yeah. you can't do anything about it. So you're kind of like, uh-oh. Uh like yeah. you kind of see it coming. But yeah, Ty's not a dirty driver. Just had a lapse of judgment there going for the win, which – it's happened in racing for 75 years. So it, mm -hmm. it's part of it. It's unfortunate because we've kind of had some bad luck lately and we've put ourselves in position to win a race and just kind of need to survive the restarts. And you think somebody like Ty would be one person you can really trust, but I mean, people make mistakes. It happens. We'll all move on from it, but we were in a good spot there and just didn't turn out for us good at the end. So you spot for Ryan and cup Zane and trucks. Um, I was looking for this information, but now that I have you here, I can go straight to the source. Do you spot for anybody in Xfinity full-time or part-time? 
Uh, not full time, no. Um, we'll do some second spotting every once in a while at some of the road courses where they really lack on people. But with Penske having their Xfinity program that they used to have, we were all kind of just focused on that program and just doing the Xfinity car. So right now, we know we don't do we don't do Xfinity full time, which I miss it sometimes, and sometimes I don't because you can kind of get you can get a good sense of everything happening from watching on TV or just a lot of times we hang out there and watch the race from the roof. Yeah. So it's it's good to kind of get a, a read on everything. But, I mean, I miss spotting. You always want to be on a team and competing for wins. So Zane and Ryan, I, I would say personality-wise, at least from the outside, knowing them how I do a little bit, they seem kind of similar, very chill, mild-mannered guys, don't get too high, don't get too low. Do you have to change how you spot, whether you're spotting Zane in the truck series or Ryan in the cup series? Like, do you have to change how you do your job when it comes to inflection points, information that you're given? How does that work for you? Um, a little bit. I would say Ryan being a little more into his career, he's more aware of everything going on and more knowledgeable, just experience. You know, he's you don't have to coach him as much where – I started with Zane his rookie year in trucks, which was four years ago now. So we've been together for a while. And back then it was a lot of coaching and trying to get him to understand that stuff, which he's done an awesome job of, obviously. So it's kind of a couple years ago was a lot different where you're a lot more coaching Zane in the truck versus Ryan in the cup car, where now it's a little less coaching and you're prepared before you get there because they've done it so much where they're both really maturing into their own. What about series to series truck series? Obviously there's, a lot younger drivers, a lot more aggression, a lot more wrecking, less respect, right? That's kind of what we see. And in the Cup Series, as we know, it's just a completely different animal. I would assume that you may have to tailor how you spot series to series a little bit. Is that true? Yeah, for sure. I, I would say the Cup Series is much more on kill, where you can be running 15th and everybody's very well and knowing what they're doing. And it's hard to make ground where the trucks is – you need to be a little more patient if you're going to get back there and surviving by some of the guys. And I would say it's probably a little easier to get to the front in trucks just because it feels not quite as deep. So just being patient when you're in the, you know, the mid pack of trying to survive some of the rookies and some of the people, it's kind of tough now with practice too, because a lot of these rookies haven't ran 10 laps at gateway until the race this weekend. So they don't have a lot of experience with how trucks run around each other, how the track changes grooves and stuff like that. So, you just got to be more patient in trucks, I would say, versus Cup, where Cup is everyone's there for a reason. They've all earned their spot there, so it's a lot, it's a lot more difficult. So you're a little more on kill in trucks versus just being smart and patient in, in trucks. I would say versus Cup. How have you seen the job of being a spotter evolve over the years? I think you've been with Ryan for almost a decade now, which makes me feel old. Um, but you've been in spotting way longer than that. I'm curious how you've seen the job itself morph into the form that it is today. Yeah, I grew up listening to spotters. So I grew up listening to people like Joey Myers that used to spot for Brad, uh, Billy O'Day that spotted for Kevin Harvick for a while at RCR. And, you know, mid-2000s, it was just inside-outside clear cautions out. Like, it was pretty pretty calm, not a lot of information of what's going on behind you. And, and it's definitely involved. I mean, you look at speedway races – there's a lot going into cars four or five behind you and what's happening, what lanes you need to be in. And I wouldn't say as much coaching as it is telling somebody where to go if you some of the times in the speedway race. So it's definitely more involved. Now you have 
you have data and analytics with restarts and SMT for lines and affecting people's air, that kind of stuff. So it's definitely got more, more evolved and more into a, like a, I wouldn't say a driver coach, but more of a, like a driver caddy relationship, kind of like a want to refer to like golf yeah. where you're kind of in his ear a lot more than just being a safety mechanism on the roof. So that for me is fun. I mean, super speedways are the best for me, like as a spotter, that's the most fun you could ever have because you're a lot more involved in what's going on on the track. I'm surprised it only took us 13 minutes to, to have a golf analogy from you that I, I would have <laughs> taken the under on that. Um, we'll get to golf later for sure. Cause that's a big part of your story and a big part of kind of what brought you to where you are today. But in terms of spotting, you mentioned super speedways. Ryan's really good on those types of tracks. You are really good on those types of tracks. You pair you guys together, and it's no surprise that you guys have had success. One at Talladega, one at Daytona. have come really close at Atlanta as well. When you go to those super speedway racetracks, it used to be four times a year, and now if you want to count Atlanta, it's six times a year. Do you get a little bit more jacked up knowing that you may be able to make a little bit more of a difference than normal? I definitely, I would say so, you know gateway as a spotter you're not making a lot of difference versus if you're going to talladega or daytona you feel like you feel like you can make a 10 percent difference that will make a big difference in your team's outcome that day so i would say for me definitely feel more amped up ready to go to one of those places and atlanta now adding a couple more races to it like that makes it more fun so those are my most fun ones i wish we went there every week <laughs> i wish we could just do them all it'd be great for us I don't know if the captain feels the same way. That'd be a big, uh, that'd be a big harm in the wallet for Mister Olrazetsky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we try not to tear up too much stuff, but it's inevitable. Yeah. inevitable. yeah, you know how it is. Um, all right, so you mentioned golf. Let's get there. I have to. I have a bone to pick with you. I, I don't golf that that often, hardly ever. But you call yourself a washed up golfer in your Twitter bio. <laughs> I think you're a little bit better than that. You may not be giving yourself enough credit, Josh. Yeah. I I tell people I used to be pretty good. I played mini tours and professional golf for. You four used or five to be years. really good. You can toot yeah. your own horn. It's okay. <laughs> okay, I used to be really good. Yes, there you go. But I tell people if I was that good, I wouldn't be spotting. So obviously, I wasn't Fair. that good. <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, I used to play. I played mini tours and some professional events like that growing mm -hmm. up out of high school, and then kind of got into golfing and spotting at the same time. And golfing was going okay, but spotting was better from a professional standpoint. So took that route. I would say you're probably the best in the NASCAR garage. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Denny won't let me play it. in this league because he says I'm too good, which I think is not true, but that's some. BS. I would never win. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even if you did, like there can be a handicap of sorts. They yeah. can figure out a formula to put on you or like a cap or something, you know? Yeah. They have a handicap system. I'm never going to beat somebody with a 15 handicap. Because yeah. I have to shoot 65 and they have to shoot at 80. Like, I'm not going to do it. No. All right. So. so, Denny, he's definitely not listening. But, Denny, if you're listening, <laughs> let's get Josh in the league for next year. It's probably too late for this year, but the Golf Guys Tour next year, let's make it happen. You got let's my vote. Thanks. I got one. <laughs> all right. There you go. That's all you need. How is um how's Ryan at golf? I know that he was really into it at one point. I haven't heard him talk about it a lot, but does he still get out on the links a good amount? Yeah, he plays quite a bit. Um, When, we, when I first started spotting for him, we were like, let's go play golf. And like, we'll kind of, he hadn't really played ever. So we were just kind of getting to learn. And I remember we went to play golf in Daytona one day. And I don't remember if it was after nine holes or after 18. He's like, I'm never playing golf again. Like, that's <laughs> stupid. I suck at it. I'm never playing. 
And now I'm fairly sure he plays more than me and loves it. Like he plays, he plays quite a bit and he, I mean, all the time he's playing and got pretty good. I mean, he can shoot, I think he's handicapped like a 10 or 12 now. So he'll be shooting high seventies, low eighties, pretty consistent. So from when we first played, it was keeping track of how many balls he lost, not his score. Now he's down (laughs) to shooting eighties. So he plays a lot. He's gotten pretty good at it too. He enjoys it. That's progress. Uh, Does Brittany play at all? Have you given her any lessons? So we've got her out there. She pretty good on the driving range, but the whole having to aim at something and play is not really her yeah. forte yet. No. But we we've got it to where she can at least make contact with the ball every time. Okay. It's just if it gets off the ground or not. But every three or four shots, she hits one good. We we played a couple weeks ago and she had we played nine holes and she had two pars. And I'm like, that's good. babe, that's I'm like that's really good. She's like, oh, what about these other holes? I'm like. You're not going to have two bars again for like three years. Like be excited. <laughs> Take <laughs> so the small victories there. when you can get them. Right. Yeah, exactly. We're getting there. She enjoys being out there. It's just, she's just getting started. So going from hitting driving range balls to actually playing on the course is tough for her. She's so. got a good teacher. I think she's in good hands. Um, Like I said, this will be the last thing golf for a little bit, but like I, I don't play hardly at all, but when I do, I, I, if I make contact with the ball, I'm happy. Like that, that's <laughs> the level that I'm at. I just can't hit the ball off the tee at all. Give me, give me your golfer dummies five second tip. Like, how do I hit the ball off the tee straight? Uh, swing harder. And hopefully, you hit it off the tee. And then <laughs> from there, the basics of golf are whichever way you hit it, try to swing the direction it ends up. Like okay. people always slice it. Like for a right hander, they slice it, and they're like, "Oh, I need to swing more left because it goes right." That only creates more slice spin. So if you hit it to the right, start trying to swing to the right to straighten your path out. Okay. Because I played baseball my whole life growing up, and I just, like, when I first started swinging a golf club, I had the baseball motions. I had, like, the squash, the bug, the hips, all that stuff, and my buddies were like, no, you got to do it this way. And I'm like, I I can't. I can't do it that way. So I'm trying. No, we'll get you out there. We'll die again. It's not that bad. All right. If If I can beat Brittany, you know, one every nine holes, I'll call that a successful day. I would say you can. You got a good shot at that. Okay. All right. Well, I'll have a good teacher in you as well. Um, moving on from golf for a little bit, um, people that may know you may know that your story involves the Intimidator, Dale Earnhardt. Um, your dad, he worked for him in terms, uh, for, in a merchandising perspective up until he passed in, in 2001. I think you were 12 years old when, when, he, when we lost him in 01. I'm curious you know, what your relationship was like with him up until that point, because we see him from the outside as the man, the intimidator, this grizzly old country boy veteran who is Dale Earnhardt. But it seems like from everything I've read and seen and watched, you just kind of saw him as your dad's buddy and you were just hanging out with him all the time. Yeah. Like I was most of the time that I knew Dale, I was so young. I didn't even really realize he raced. It was more of a, my dad's hunting buddy and someone that would come hang out at the house during race weekends until I got to be, you know, seven or eight years old and realize what's going on. But it was just one of my dad's really good friends, really, that kind of created their their business partnership and dad working for him for all those years. But, uh, yeah, just one of my dad's good friends. We went on a bunch of hunting trips together. Martinsville week, he would always park his motorhome in the backyard behind my house, which was like two miles away from the racetrack. So cool. So that was really cool. Like, he would literally cook dinner in the house with my mom and dad and – put extra hot sauce and everything where everybody was dying the rest of the night because he loved <laughs> hot food and Teresa had him on a diet. He could only eat chicken. So he would always eat steak when he was at the house and not tell her. So I do remember some of those stories. Um, 
one of my favorite stories is probably back in, I mean, I was probably seven or eight. I was playing like NASCAR 94 on like a computer game, which was like this story. Uh-huh. a pixelated race car and you couldn't really even see what you were doing. And I was barely reaching the pedals and steering, looking over the steering wheel. And on the game, there was a, there was like a glitch that if you wrecked people under yellow, you could get the position. So I would always start in the back and they would have a caution and I would just like dump one at a time under yellow and get to the front. <laughs> That's one way to and do it. Yeah, which I'm six, right? Like who cares? Of course. But I remember Dale being the intimidator he was that there's all these videos of him roughing up people and wrecking Terry Labonte at Bristol and stuff. He got so mad at my dad that he like stormed out of the house because my dad was letting me do it and laughing. And he got so mad at my dad that he stormed out of the house and went to the motorhome for like a day and a half and never came back in the house. Like he was like, "You need to teach your boy how to drive. Like that's not the right way. He needs to like be respectful." I'm like, "It's a video game." My dad's like, "What is he doing?" But I always think about that now when I'm like on i racing or you see videos of Dale getting into somebody. Like he was that guy on the track, but off the track, he was he was awesome. A day and a half he pouted for a full day yeah. and a half. Unreal. Yeah. Friday night till Sunday morning. Yep, never came back in the house. Well, at least you didn't get any uh, hot steak or hot chicken. That's right, yeah. We had normal meals then. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm curious. I mean, it seemed like you know your, your dad and Dale were legitimately really close, like best friends. How often were you around when he was around? Because from the pictures and the videos and stuff that I saw, you know, you get you guys went on hunting trips together with Dale's daughter. She came along too, and they, they were kind of giving you crap, saying that you guys were flirting with each other when you were like yeah. seven years old, right? I mean, it seems like you mentioned you were too young to comprehend the fact that this was the man, but looking back on it in hindsight, these are some really cool memories and cool photos and stuff to kind of look back on and say, I wish I knew who I was around. Yeah. And definitely I have that, that picture of it now. I mean, I was 12 when he died. You think about when you're 12, you don't really, you don't have a grasp of what's going on around you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But I like most of my memories are like off season hunting. Cause like during the season, like, we might go to his motorhome or whatever and say hey before a race, but it wasn't. We weren't hanging out during the week during the season because he had so much stuff going on back then. But just like hunting at the farm and like going to Texas hunting and that kind of stuff. Um, that's most of my memories. And then yeah, the flirting with Taylor. We were like nine, sitting in a tree stand, thumb wrestling, and Dale was telling we were flirting. And we were like, ooh, girls, like no but, cooties. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so he obviously passed away in 2001. Um, and again, you're 12, so you know, it, it hits everybody differently, but you were kind of young and, and, you know, that whole thing happened, but Kevin Harvick steps into the seat for RCR. And I believe your dad went to go work with him from 2001 onward for a little bit there. Do I have a right that you developed a bit of a relationship with Kevin as well from that point forward, or maybe a little bit later on? For sure. Um, I would say probably like a year or so after he went in the, the 29 car back then okay. he so dad was doing souvenirs for you know half the garage and dad was doing souvenirs for like half the garage and kevin coming into the 29 car then kind of just became friends with him and kevin kind of once he got settled in was known for a little bit of a hothead but just a passionate person and i remember like dad having some serious conversations with him just kind of like as a a mentor just kind of like him and dale would do just kind of taking him under his wing and kevin started hanging out with us more um and he was kind of like a big brother to me all through 
especially the early years until he kind of got running KHI and so busy and stuff like that and started having his own family and stuff like that. But yeah, it was definitely like a big brother for a while. And Kevin's a lot of the reason I ever got started in spotting was hanging out with him and people he knew. Why didn't you ever spot for him or did you? I didn't. My dad did actually for my dad did some of the second spotting for him at some of the road courses and dad was actually second spotting when he won the brickyard in 2003. Cool. So I remember kissing the bricks then as a little 12 year old, I guess, or 14, 15 year old, wherever I was then. Wow. Yeah. I remember kissing the bricks back then. Um, yeah. Dad just did some second spotting stuff for him like that, but I never did. So I find it interesting, you know, cause at that point you're 14, he's probably at or around double your age at that point. Um, when he started, you know, winning races in the cup series, cementing himself as kind of a cup series driver. And, you know, this is obviously before you went into the cup series as a spotter and, you know, golf was coming into focus and stuff like that. Um, did your guys relationship kind of hold or did you take a break? And then when you came back into NASCAR as kind of a, a full-time spotter, you kind of rekindled. Um, I think we were, we were always good. You know, I think we had probably hung out more before I started spotting. And I think that was just because where we were, we played a lot of golf together, which is kind of how we all hung out away from the track. And back then when he had KHI, he lived in Kernersville, which mm-hmm. was only like 45 minutes from Martinsville. So a lot of times during the week we would meet to play golf and stuff like that. He had a, he had a go-kart track at his house. We used to all race go-karts at. So we kind of just all had a, an off track relationship back then. And then, when I moved to Charlotte, he had like Keelan and Piper and they're all kind of doing the family thing now. And then he didn't have KHI anymore. So he was more focused on the cup cars and KHI management and that kind of thing. So I wouldn't say we like ever had any bad times. We just kind of life just kind of took us in different directions, but we're still, we're still friends. Like we'll still text every once in a while and talk junk. Yeah, I gotcha. Um, growing up, I would assume that Dale was kind of your guy. Um, did you have any other NASCAR drivers that you, you looked up to or you were a fan of or anybody that you tried to kind of hang on to a little bit? Uh, it was all Dale growing up okay. and all Dale. And then when I got older and Dale Jr. started racing, I pulled for Dale Jr. And I would say the only other person I ever really enjoyed being around was like Bobby Labonte. Like early 2000s, like when he won his championship and now like racing in the Smart Modified Tour that dad runs. Bobby's awesome. And I mean, Bobby's probably one of my dad's best friends now, somebody he leans on a lot away from the track. So I, I really enjoyed Bobby and like hearing stories from him back then and, and being around him now with what he's got going on and stuff with racing modifieds and stuff like that. It's pretty cool. This looks bad on me. I probably should have known this or done my research, but your dad runs a smart modified tour. I didn't know that. Yeah. So a few years ago, he got out of the NASCAR merchandising stuff and started running the smart modified tour and kind of brought it back to life, which is wow. why some of his friends like Bobby Labonte and Ryan Newman and some of them guys yeah. have kind of got into that. So yeah, he runs it. He's the tour director and pretty much runs the whole show there. That's very cool. Uh, did you yeah. ever, did you ever race on a competitive or semi-competitive level besides racing go-karts at Harvick's house? Did you ever get behind the wheel yourself? So when I was little, I ran go-karts on like dirt ovals um, growing up, but like my dad was gone all the time, so it was just like one of my dad's buddies that knew about go-karting. Sure. I did that for a while, and then didn't really race anything for like 10 or 12 years. And then the last two years, I've done a modified race each year. So I raced at Bowman Gray in 2021. I did a race. 
And then last year I ran the Smart Modified Tour at Caraway and did a race. How was it racing at the Madhouse? Oh boy. Uh, that was like my first time at, well, I practiced, I tested the modified. That was my first race. So my whole goal was to get out of the way and not get punched after the race. And I remember I did okay. Like I wasn't competitive. Like I was just trying to make laps Yeah. and I did okay. And I remember I ran into a back of a guy. I didn't wreck him. I just ran into him and like moved him out of the way and I felt bad about it. And I'm like, this young guy is probably going to be mad after the race. So like after the race, I went down just like, Hey, like my first time, like totally didn't mean to. And the guy was like 80 years old. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. And he was like <laughs> laughing. He was like, that's so much fun. His name's Crab Smith. He's awesome. He's an Oscar older gentleman. But he's literally like 80 and I had no idea. And I thought I'd it was smoke. like an 18-year-old kid. He's 80. Yeah. Respect your elders. Exactly. Like I'm expecting some 20-year-old with a mullet that's ready to like whoop my butt. And <laughs> he's down there like an 80-year-old like, oh, it's okay. It's fine. Like, Thank you. Sorry. Oh, my God. I love it. See, I asked because... It seems like a lot of spotters that I've talked to and that I, you know, hear and see on the roof are former drivers themselves. Um, just to name a couple, I mean, Tim Fidoa, Tony Raines, like there, there's a ton of guys that are up there that have former driving experience. Now you're a very accomplished iRacer. I know you're on there a lot and clearly you have experience behind the wheel and you've been in racing your whole life. So, you know, you're living proof and there's a lot of people on the roof that should never be behind the wheel of a race car. You don't have to have former racing experience to be good at at spotting. It just kind of is one of those things that like anything else in racing or in life, you hone your craft long enough, you'll become good at it, right? Yeah, I think so. I think I think being a former driver kind of helps initially, like what somebody needs, what you would expect in a car, what's going around, like having that perspective. But I think like you said, like if you're around it long enough and do the homework and understand your craft of what's going on. Like you get, you get better at it and you understand what's happening. And honestly running those few modified races probably helped me a little bit of what's going on around me, what I can't see, what I can see, what I need to know. I feel like that's helped me just a little bit from a very far distance to understand like what's going on in the car and what, what I need to say. And, and also understanding like sometimes on the roof, you're kind of calm and talking a lot. Well, sometimes in the car, you just want somebody to shut up. And I understood that when I raced. Like, sometimes you just want some quiet time. Peace and quiet is very underrated sometimes. I, I can totally understand that. Um, so I know um, when you first started spotting, I believe I have the timeline right, Scott Speed, Michael McDowell, A.J. Allmendinger, Blaney, there may have been some in between there that I missed. But when you first got started atop the spotter stand, I think it was with Scott can you take me back to even before that happened and how you got involved in potentially even becoming an eye in the sky? Everybody has a unique story. I'm sure yours is no different. Yeah, for sure. So going back to racing go-karts at Harvick, Scott Speed was – he raced go-karts at Harvick some with us when he came back over from F1. So me and him kind of kicked it off because he liked playing golf at the time. So it was like, let's go play golf during the week and just kind of became friends. When he left Red Bull, he started doing like some starting park stuff. And he basically asked me to like come on the road with him and start like spotting. Like, so I could basically pay for my golf career that I was still trying to keep going. So my first week ever spotting for him was the Bristol Night Racing Cup. That's the first thing I ever spotted. Yeah. To the show. That's exactly what the team owner said. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? Like, who's this guy? And Scott. Scott went to bat for me. Like I trust him. Like we'll teach him and get better. So that was my first race was the Bristol night race. Um, 
And then from there, yeah, just me and Scott were buddies. So we just kind of play golf during the week and go spot during the weekend and go back home and play golf again. So that's how I got my start. And then you obviously progressed from him. You had some time with AJ, with Michael. When did Blaney and, and the Wood Brothers and then Penske come into the fold? I guess timeline-wise, it was like 2014-15-ish. But behind the scenes, how did that all come together? Yeah, so I started for Scott in 2011. And I did him up and through 2013. And early 2014 was when McDowell went into the Levine Family Racing 95 car. And I was spotting for McDowell, but it was only a part-time deal. Like, they only ran, like, 20 races. And I was doing McDowell, and halfway through 2014, A.J. Allmendinger's spotter, um, David Green, left to go work at NASCAR. So, like, halfway through, they asked me, because I was, like, only doing a part schedule, like, could you come do a few races for us while you were not spotting? And the 95 was, like, super supportive. Like, it's a full-time deal. Like, go try it out, and if it goes good – great if not you can come back so i went and started spotting for aj halfway through 2014 which was ironically enough like his first win at Watkins Glen was that year that's right which was like my fifth or sixth race with him so that was pretty cool and it was it was week to week but it was like understanding like you're going to finish the year basically and at the end of that year uh wood brothers and penske reached out about going with ryan the next year so like that off season like sorted out to go with ryan and 2015, we kind of did a part schedule with everything. I think we did 15 cup races, like 10 truck races, and like 15 Xfinity races or something. Yeah, a lot. We just kind of did a little bit of everything, yeah. It was a lot, but it was cool because we would do, say, for instance, Bristol. We might do all three races. But then we would have like two or three weeks off before we would do like two more races. So, like, it was a lot of work, but we'd also get like weeks off in it. So, it was kind of neat versus now being gone. 38 weeks like we do two or three races a weekend and then have a couple weeks off so that was pretty cool but that's where it all started was uh that win with aj at the Glen in 2014 i think i saw footage it might have been the fox sports piece that you did uh, a few years back were you the guy that climbed over that guardrail and your leg got stuck and aj was bear hugging you that was me yeah so <laughs> that's what i thought I, w- I went down to climb over the guardrail and obviously have adrenaline going oh, yeah. so i like stepped over the guardrail which was fine the problem was when I tried to put my foot down, my other foot was still stuck. Yeah. So I was like tippy toe and tippy toe stuck on it. And AJ like pulled me over and we still, and he's not a that tall man. guy either. Exactly. Yeah. Like <laughs> comes up to my armpit. Yeah. Um, but he like pulled me over and you should have seen all the memes. Everybody was calling me like a teapot and stuff. Cause I was stuck <laughs> on this fencing, but yeah, that was, yeah. that was pretty funny. I have some good pictures from getting stuck on that. I'm sure. Yeah. Cause I was rewatching that feature and prep for this. And I was like, Oh, I remember watching that live. That was Josh. So yeah, very cool. Um, I, you know, we talked about how, you know, when spotting first started out, you were listening to Billy O on the 29. Um, you know, it was just inside, outside, clear cautions out right from 2011. I think you said when you started with Scott to now, I can't even imagine just the changes that you've seen in in the industry, in the role and also just being a little bit reflective in yourself, too. I mean, you, you're one of the best that does it on the roof nowadays. You've won big-time races. You've won super speedways. You've, run a, you've won a major. You know, the, yeah. the growth that you've had in the better part of a decade and a half, it's pretty great when you look back on it. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I'm, I remember the first, like, year with Scott doing, like, start and part stuff. Like, you only spotted what was 20 back and then 10 back because they were – leaders were coming and you were just trying to stay clean and – 
not take a big car for the 50 laps you would run it to they would part and make some money so i went from that and then now like listening to like audio clips from when aj won like the excitement in my voice and like squealing and just my tone like it was funny looking back like how like animated i was on the radio when nothing was like happening basically yeah but now knowing like how much stuff goes on and just stuff learned with ryan like through the years of where we even started to what he wants and like how i can do things better in little moments of something that happened four years ago that i look for now in the last few laps of a race that just stuff like that it's definitely definitely evolved and definitely i would say i've gotten better and more mature on the radio of understanding how it all works compared to where i was in 14 is pretty funny to listen to yeah a lot of people have said that it's way easier to spot a fast car than it is a slow car. I can't even imagine a start and park. Like, yeah, you, you might run five laps and pull it in. But still, at that point, I mean, that's pretty nerve-wracking to just have the whole field bearing down on you. And you know that it's not going to be their mistake. It's going to be yours. So you better just keep it clean and green. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, start and parking is not fun. Nobody wants to do it. But no. some of those teams that are back then, I mean, it's not as much anymore. But some of those teams back then, they were – that was the only way they could keep their company afloat just to have that team go make some money on an old set of tires and run 30 laps until the field kind of caught them. So there was a lot of people counting on you not to tear up anything and the team just to make it to the next week, not tearing up anything. Yeah. So that's definitely, definitely some stress in that. Um, especially you get somewhere like a Martinsville or Richmond or Bristol. That's, I mean, things can happen no matter how safe you're trying to be, there's still things that can happen. Um, so yeah, that was stressful. And then, like looking at it now, like, like you said, like the fastest car is normally the easiest one to spot. And I told somebody that this weekend at gateway, they were like, good job last week. I'm like, you don't say that when we're running 15th and we're like hung out <laughs> trying to hold off people. And that's hard. We were yeah. joking about that. Like it's, it's easier to spot a fast car, but there's still, there's still a job to be done. And you still have to get through all the restarts and do your job that way. But it's definitely easier to go forward than holding off people behind you. Yeah. Those days when you're finishing 15th or 20th, those are when you really, make your money speaking of money i have to ask the obvious question your name is very similar i would venture to say the exact same as a certain driver that parked it on the front stretch at atlanta earlier this year did nascar send the fine to the right josh williams i think they contacted the right one because i didn't hear okay, anything good. I, I was waiting on it i was waiting on it i got I'm tagged sure. in like i got tagged in like Fox post, XM post, NASCAR post. I'm like, make sure y'all get the right one when y'all send the important stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah, I was, I've gotten tagged and stuff, but luckily they sent it to the right person. You probably it's funny. Tagged that, in look. so much stuff every week. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's all the time. Like, like this weekend in Portland, I got tagged in like pictures of Josh taking pictures with fans or like even their team this week tagged me in a post about practice. Like they had some little issue and it was like, Josh Williams brought it back to pit road. And I'm like, sitting in gateway for truck practice yeah, like, yeah no, you're like are you sure i'm on the roof right now <laughs> yeah it's funny every once in a while i'll play with it like some fan tweeted me a couple weeks ago about it and i just like responded like thanks to all my partners and i just tagged all the jobs i saw that one i saw that <laughs> one yeah as long as the money uh or the fine i should say got sent to the right place that's all that matters for you because you ain't paying yeah. that yeah right i'm i am innocent yes 100 innocent <laughs> um and you know it's good because a little birdie told me, aka your Twitter bio, that you are a sneakerhead, so you need that money to spend on some sneakers. How much are we talking? Like, like what kind of sneakers slash shoes are we buying? How much of a sneakerhead are you? 
Uh, I got an issue. I definitely have a problem. Um, <laughs> I would say I have 40, 50 pair of Jordans. And wow. overall, I probably have like 130 pair. Yeah. Okay, that's probably nothing a, on Denny, say, but Denny's on another level. Yeah, he gets his free, though. He's cheap. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, have to, I have to work for mine. He gets his free. No wonder why you're not in his golf league. You're calling him a cheap ass. That's right, yeah. No. <laughs> I normally, when I play with him, he's got some cool shoes on. I'm like, hey, let's play for those shoes. And he's like, no. No, these are mine. <laughs> he can get another one for free. Come on. Exactly. He can get whatever he wants from Jordan. Yeah. But, yeah, that's I have... Cool. Uh, yeah, I have right at a hundred pair of regular sneakers, and I got about twenty five pair of golf shoes. Best dress so, sneaker sneaker hat on the spotter stand, probably. I could be if I wanted to be. Yeah, I normally just wear my Finsky shoes, but there's some truck day. There's like a standalone truck day or something like that. I wear something good. Just the last year for the truck championship, I wore some Jordan One Lows that were pretty cool. Dress for the dress for the championship, baby. You went in there <laughs> knowing the you were going to get it. Uh, but I get that though. Wear, wear the Penske stuff. You don't want to wear your best on a on a hot day. I was hearing that people's shoes were legitimately melting into the asphalt. I, I saw that. Away. Yeah, it was it was very hot in in the yeah. pits. It was very hot inside on the asphalt. Not great. All right, I got a couple more quick ones here, and I'll let you run. I mentioned Brittany a little bit earlier in the show. Brittany Zamora, if you guys are not familiar, she's a racer herself. Got to know her very well when she was racing in the K and M Pro Series. So she's a racer. You're obviously a racer. You guys have both been in it basically your whole lives. I'm sure that that's easy for you guys to navigate, having that common ground. And, you know, she gets that you're gone all the time. You get that she's gone and trying to make sponsor deals all the time. It'd be hard if, you know, somebody doesn't really understand how the world of racing works, but you both do. And I guess that's kind of why you guys are good for each other. Yeah, it, it definitely, like, being a part is hard. I mean, being in NASCAR is very hard for someone that spouse or girlfriend isn't in it. And it sounds great at first until you realize you're gone 150 days a year. Um, but it definitely makes it easier for us, her knowing what it takes and knowing what it takes during the week and also being gone makes it easier just to get through. Um, still doesn't make it easy, but easier. Um, but yeah, she's, she's awesome. Super supportive. Comes to races when she can. I go to her races when I can. Um, Last year, I think Talladega, she raced like two and a half hours away. So, like, as soon as the truck race is over, I went down there and I'm like changing in the car, running 90, trying to get to her race. So, it's cool. It's like, it's great to have her support, um, especially with, you know, being gone and when you don't have good weeks. And when you go over 59, it's 59 Sunday nights at home that aren't happy. So, yeah. Finally had a good one at home and we got to celebrate a little bit this week. Quick tangent we we're talking about money and the fines. Did Blaney give you any of the million when you won the All Star race? No, no. I got a, I got oh. a cool belt buckle. I got a cool belt buckle on a hat, though. I got, I got the old John Wayne starter kit going. Okay, yeah. we'll, we'll allow it. I didn't know how that money gets divvied out, or if it did. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Okay. No, um, we got some cool belt buckles and hats, though. So that was good. It's all that matters. It's all that's good. So we're headed to Sonoma this weekend, out west. Got a long flight out there, so I'm appreciative that you're giving me some of that time. I know it's valuable this week. How do you guys handle spotting at road courses like that? That are really really big because at the roval you know you can theoretically see everything from your perch but sonoma the Glen, road america even though we don't go there anymore these are huge expansive road courses and you can't do the job alone so how do you handle it yeah so we have two at sonoma um we'll have dave nichols which is our tire guy he'll help me during the race so practice and qualifying i'll still do it by myself because he'll be doing tires and his other responsibilities but race time he'll come help me 
it'll be down like turn 11 area to do turn 11 and the restarts. And then I can see the rest of the track from there other than a couple hundred foot blind spots or something like that. But we'll have two. It's not easy having multiple, especially like Sonoma. You can kind of see most of it, except for like the front stretch behind the grandstands. So it makes it a little more difficult when you can kind of see a little bit of what he can see, not talking over each other versus a a road America like we had last year where you yeah. physically can't see. That makes it easier to kind of do handoffs. So he's, he helps. He's, he's pretty much the, the primary two guy. Whenever we need a second guy, he's always the first choice. So he's used to it now, and he does a good job with just coming in and filling in. It's not easy, but road courses, especially now with no stage breaks, they can get a little spread out. So you just survive yeah. the first six, eight laps after a restart. It's not too bad. Are you like a control freak and you like when you're passing it off to him, you're like, oh, I hope he can do this. I don't know. There's times that like you're about to pass it off and you can see something happening. And you're just like kind of just keep talking a little yeah. longer just to yeah. paint it. This, it's not easy to come in and be a second guy. A hundred percent. It's not, especially when you don't do it every week. I mean, he spots five times a year probably and only the races. So it's hard to go a month without doing it and then just jump into it and yeah. restart your hectic and that kind of thing. So it's not easy, and you kind of get a to see a little bit of the picture before it gets to him. So there it is times that you kind of run a little bit past what you can actually see just to paint the picture of what's happening just to make him aware. But, yeah, there's definitely times I'm like, ugh. Or, or times he'll, like, say something, and I'm like, I might get yelled after that one. Yep, yep. <laughs> so uh, I had your spotter teammate Coleman Presley on a handful of weeks ago. I had Lambert on last year, and I asked them both, is there anything else on your guys' spotting bucket list that you want to achieve? I think um, Coleman or Lambert. I think it was Lambert. He said that he wanted to do the Indy 500, got close one year to do it with Santino Ferrucci. I don't remember what Coleman said. But, you know, you've won the Coke 600 now. You've been doing it for over a decade. Is there anything specifically, whether it's in NASCAR or in other forms of motorsports, that you'd like to accomplish atop the spotter stand? Uh, I've checked off a few cool ones. I'm from Martinsville. So winning Martinsville was one of my bucket list ones and getting a clock. So I always gave Zane a hard time. If we are, well, I gave Zane and Ryan, if we ever win, like I'm getting a clock, which that's I yours. have a clock. I have a clock 10 feet from me right now. So that's cool. Um, things I haven't accomplished Daytona 500 would be top of the list. We won the summer race at Daytona, but the 500 would be the top of the list. And then, I mean, Indy 500 would be cool. I would be a phone to do just to spot it. Yeah. Last year, some, good friends with Scott McLaughlin and last year he was joking that he wanted me to like come do it and do like the double. And I'd had a few people that were important kind of agree that if we won before the Indy 500 last year, they were going to let me do it, but we didn't win before the Indy 500. So I didn't get to do it. So we won, we won the, the all-star, all-star race. race didn't before. count. It didn't count. No. Oh. So it was like a few people were like, yeah, we'll work it out. if It works. And then, he, we didn't win yet, so I didn't get to do it. But that'd be a cool one to do, and maybe, maybe some other time down the road I could get that one in. But Indy 500 would be a neat one, probably the biggest one to do, spotting wise. I was gonna say, I mean, you're already at Team Penske. I don't think that they're gonna be uh, short on drivers in that race, considering the boss owns the racetrack, the boss owns the series, boss owns the team. So hopefully you can make that work. I don't know if Ryan's ever wanted to pull the double or Cindric or Joey, whatever, but. You definitely have some avenues there, so keep pushing. I think he can. Make <laughs> I know one. we need to win some more stuff in Cup first, and then maybe we Fair. can get it over there to do both. But that'd be a, that'd be a cool one to go spot for sure. But do you know, in NASCAR, do you know if, they uh, talk about yeah. Do you know if Tyler's going to do the double next year with Larson? He told me he was. 
I don't know if that's 100% set in stone, but he told me he was. And I know he went with him when Larson went up last week yeah. to go for like the race or not the race day, but when he went for that practice day, he so went with sorry. him to kind of see how it goes. So I would say he probably does. That'd be pretty sweet. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time. I appreciate you going a little bit long with me. Like I said, I know it's a big week for you. You just got back from Gateway. Uh, felt like another 600-mile race, and you're flying all the way out west to Sonoma. So best of luck this weekend. Go get yourself another win on the road course, and best of luck points forward as well. We'll be chatting soon, I'm sure. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for all the support. And we are back. First of all, thank you to Josh for carving out so much time. I only had him for about 30, 35 minutes, and we went like 45-plus. So thank you to him for carving out that time, and thank you to Drew Taylor of Team Penske for helping coordinate that conversation and sitting in on it with us. So I hope you enjoyed your uh, Monday afternoon worth of podcast content with Josh, Drew. Uh, Thanks again to both of those guys for making it all happen. And uh, I really appreciate all their time because Josh is a busy, busy man. And to give me all of that on a busy week, it does not go unnoticed. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Go get yourself another dub at Sonoma and drink some wine for me. Let's chat briefly about the action that we saw over the weekend in St. Louis at Worldwide Technology Raceway and out west in the Pacific Northwest at Portland International Raceway as well. So let's start off with Kyle Busch. Kyle Busch, obviously the winner again in the 3G number eight RCR Chevy, his third win of the year. He's already matched the total that he had for the entire 2021 and 2022 season combined at Joe Gibbs Racing. He has taken RCR to new heights. And no disrespect to Austin Dillon, but everybody said, wow, RCR has really stepped up their game. I don't think that that's untrue. But I think more than RCR stepping up their game, I think it's Kyle Busch elevating the organization. And Redick, you know, we saw him win a couple times last year. Uh, Kyle's already won three times this year. Fontana, Talladega, now St. Louis. Really, really impressive stuff out of him. And a really impressive performance from Randall Burnett, too, as the crew chief. In the last 34 cup races, nobody has won more races than Randy B. Three last year with Redick, three this year already with Kyle Busch, and... This is a big win for him. Hometown cooking. He's a St. Louis boy. Grew up about 10, 20 minutes outside of Gateway. And to get that win in front of his friends and family, his hometown crowd, that was big for him. So congrats to the 18. Congrats to KB. Congrats to Randy B. Big win for them. Big day for Ford as well. I know that they didn't get the win. And Ryan Blaney, we just talked with the spotter, Josh Williams. They did win a stage and they did lead a handful of laps. So a solid performance from them. But Joey Logano ran up front. Kevin Harvick ran up front. Michael McDowell scored a top 10 finish. So a good showing for a second week in a row for Ford. That's definitely something to take into the West Coast swing coming up here at Sonoma and points forward for sure. Enjoyed the racing at Gateway. It wasn't necessarily the the most barn burner of a race I've ever seen. It was a weird race too. Like it kind of pissed me off, honestly. Just uh, the lightning delays for an hour, 45 minutes. Uh, You had the weird power outages. You had a bunch of red flags towards the end of the race for cleanup. The brake rotors were exploding. I was just like, what is, what is this? I don't, I didn't know how to feel about it. Um, But nevertheless, I like gateway. I think it has a place on the cup schedule moving forward. So I hope that NASCAR and the powers that be will give it what it deserves, which is a cup date, potentially even at night. So that fans can get out of that heat next year and beyond. 
And we are off to Sonoma Raceway this upcoming weekend. The Cup Series will be out there. The Xfinity Series will also be out there. Forgot to mention the Xfinity Series out in Portland this past weekend at Portland International Raceway. Cole Custer, the general, getting the best of Justin Allgaier after he was kind of forced off track by Parker Kligerman in overtime late in the going. But a good race out there, and they're going to head out west even further to Sonoma for wine country racing. Xfinity hasn't been there in a hot minute, so excited to see the Xfinity Series take to the track at Sonoma and excited for the Cup Series to get back out there as well. Obviously, Daniel Suarez won this race last year, his first win of his Cup Series career, first win with Trackhouse. He had a really solid run at Gateway as well. His teammate Ross Chastain, not so much, so I will have my eye on Trackhouse as well. Going to have my eye on Tyler Reddick. He's really solid on road courses. He was running well at Gateway before a break order decided to go kablamo. Uh, and, of course, you're going to have your Hendrick guys and your Gibbs guys running up front as well. Dark horse Chris Busher. Don't sleep on that man. He has been putting in work on road courses. So the 17 and RFK, they may be some ones to watch at Sonoma as well. And that'll wrap things up for this episode of Victory Lane, episode 188. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Thank you so much to Josh Williams for carving out the time. If you guys like what you heard here today, please, you can do me a favor. It really does help spread the word and it helps me out. It makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Leave a rating and a review. Subscribe to the podcast. You can do so on iTunes, Google, SoundCloud, the Green app, anywhere you get your podcast that should be available there for your consumption. And if we're not, please drop me a line and I will try to rectify that issue for you. I should have mentioned it earlier, but... We talked about Brittany Zamora in the chat with Josh. Josh and Brittany are dating. I have had Brittany Zamora on the podcast before. You got to go way back in the archives. But if you search Victory Lane, Brittany Zamora, you will find her chat with moi there for you. And it may be a little bit outdated, but I know that there is some evergreen stuff and her background and how she got to this point in her racing career. I guess that point in her racing career. So check that out if you have some bandwidth and you have some time. We'll be back next week with another guest from the world of NASCAR. Going to dip down into the Arkham Menard Series ranks for the first time in a few weeks and chat with Team Hornaday development driver Landon Lewis. He's coming off of a win at Portland, and he's also going to be in action this weekend at Sonoma. So we'll see how he can do going for win number two in a row on road courses. So excited to chat with Landon, learn a little bit more about him, and get to meet him virtually for the first time. So stay tuned for that. We'll also chat Sonoma. And we will have nothing to preview because we will have an off weekend. The first and only, unfortunately, uh, and a much needed one for everybody in the industry. So looking forward to chatting about all that and more with you right here next week in Victory Lane. So long, party people. Thanks for listening.